There are at least two kinds of games. One could be called finite, the other infinite. A finite game is played for the purpose of winning, an infinite game for the purpose of continuing the play. Neil, how are you doing today? Pretty good. This book really made me think. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, this was this is a really interesting book. We actually found it via Taylor Pearson, who was on for one of the more recent episodes on cryptocurrency. That's at least where I had found it from. Yeah. He had mentioned it when we had dinner a few weeks ago, or I guess a bit over a month ago now. Said it was one of the books that he rereads every year. Oh wow! Yeah, and I can see why. Yeah, I mean, it's a book that. Um, I don't know, at least on the first pass, that was my first time reading it. I feel like I need to read again. Yeah. To fully get it. <laughs> it's, it's a weird book. It's written, I've never seen a book written quite like this, where yeah. it's almost written aphoristically, where it's 101 short paragraphs right. for the most part. Some of them are a little longer than a paragraph, but each one is both self-contained, but then also part of the longer narrative. Yeah, and builds almost on some of the previous things that were talked about. Yeah. It did make it easier to read though. Cause I think if it was one big chunk of text, it would have required like a lot more focus to get through. <laughs> yeah. But I did like how he structured it, but it's still weird in a lot of like the topic areas as well, which obviously we're going to get into. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the central idea is what we introduced in that first paragraph there, that there are two kinds of games in the world, right? Finite and infinite games. And that's basically what everything else in the book stems off of. And I guess we should be clear too, when we say games, we don't specifically mean like soccer. Well, it's inclusive of that. It includes it. Like yeah. soccer is a finite game very clearly and as are all sports or board games or video games. But like the, I don't, I, there was, we'll get to this part, but yeah. I think there was a part at the end that uh, actually the last line of the book threw me off a little bit what i thought was my understanding <laughs> yeah of yeah, everything I, yeah. it was funny when i read it i don't remember why i did this i think i was looking for the bibliography or something oh you jumped to the end and so i jumped to the end to try to find the bibliography and then i saw the last line of the book and then that was sort of in my head the whole time i was reading it oh, so yeah, i feel yeah, like yeah, that yeah. created a different experience yeah. but we'll definitely come back to that later <laughs> yeah. that's was, that was some good foreshadowing for yeah. the episode yeah Ooh. it wasn't even on purpose that was no it wasn't <laughs> But the book is broken down into these, what is it, one, it's about seven sections. And it starts with the section entirely focused on illuminating what the difference is between a finite and an infinite game. So, you know, throughout this, he's kind of like giving all of these examples and all of these constraints. So in a finite game, there are spatial boundaries that are necessary, but infinite games have no boundaries. You can have finite games within an infinite game, but infinite game can't be within a finite game. Uh, this was one that I really thought was interesting and that I've been able to apply to a lot of situations since reading it is that finite players play within boundaries and right. infinite players play with boundaries. I love that concept. I love that. Idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's so true because I mean, uh, well, we'll get much more into this, but yeah, I mean, if you think about it, like if you play within the rules of your space, whatever your space is, and by the way, that's what he, I think he means by a finite game could be any space within the real world that has boundaries, rules, anything like that. So for example, in your industry, if you play within the boundaries of your industry, that's going to create one type of experience. And then if you are an infinite player and, or you aspire to be at least, you can play with the boundaries of that industry. And that's where a lot of the disruption and the innovation happens anyway. Yeah. 
it's really like the difference between entrepreneurship and (laughs) like wage labor. You're either doing what you're told to do within a certain boundary, within a certain game, or you are constantly like changing and playing with the rules and the the boundaries of the game. With the rules themselves. Yeah, exactly. To make your own, to make your own game. This idea of boundaries is fascinating too. Yeah. And this is what I, this is the other thing I love before I get into that thing about boundaries. I was going to say the thing I loved is how the rules he lays out apply to actual games that you think of as games like soccer or football or whatever, as much as it does like industries or careers or like lives even. Um, Yeah. It's just like, it was really interesting. And, but the thing about boundaries that I thought was really interesting is um, like in everyday life, you kind of know where the unwritten boundaries are. I never thought of them as boundaries until like he explicitly said them that way. But like, you know that there are boundaries in life. Like you can't just, you know, run around like shooting a gun in the air. You can in Texas, but not in (laughs) New York, that's for sure. (laughs) Um, But there are like rules, right? And some of those are laws and some of those are unwritten rules of society. And some of those are unwritten rules of your industry. Some of those are interpersonal. Like there are boundaries. But we don't necessarily call them boundary conditions, but they are. Yeah. And we don't necessarily think of them as boundaries, maybe. We just sort of recognize them as almost like the rules of play. Mm -hmm. But I like... But implicitly. Yeah, kind of implicitly, right? Like, we're not explicitly writing them out and, you know, checking against them. We just sort of learn them by osmosis. But I really like what he highlights here, which is that... None of those rules are laws. None of the boundaries are laws, right? Whenever you're playing a game, you're choosing to play the game and you are willingly confining yourself within those boundaries. And I think it's really easy to forget that, right? Like, Like I think of the college example where everyone thinks that it's sort of a rule that you have to, you know, get good grades and take hard classes, right? And it's well, no, that's just one way of doing it. And that's the way most people do. It's the way most people do it, which creates that sense of boundary. But it's ultimately a choice, right? right? I think one of the things he highlights is that people have way more freedom than they think they do. Because any game or boundary you've put yourself in, you have chosen to be there, right? Right. Nobody forced you to like be a lawyer, right? You can quit being a lawyer anytime. But if you want to continue you playing the lawyer game you have to play by you have to play by certain rules yeah especially if you want to play it as a finite player which as we'll get into there are advantages to playing things as a finite player and there are disadvantages as well yeah like things like titles and awards and things like you're not going to win best lawyer if you're playing with what the definition of being a lawyer is actually all about (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) well and and that whole like idea of rules and winners and titles it's all part of a finite game in terms of at least in his definition of that right you can't have a winner without rules right right? and the whole point of a finite game is to establish a winner right and you have to yeah agree on the rules one thing i found interesting actually before we even go further in the title of this chapter he says there are at least two kinds of games Mm, yeah finite and infinite is the only ones he talks about but i wonder what he means by at least because he doesn't seem based on this book right he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who adds words just to add words to his book so like i'm pretty sure that's there for a reason but that remained an enigma to me the entire time i remember thinking i was like where's the third kind like i'm sure at the end he's gonna initiate like another one never came yeah that's a good question because just that dichotomy well if it's finite then it's not infinite and if it's not finite then it must be infinite right Right. like what could be in between finite infinite irrational maybe i don't know maybe or i wonder if like he hasn't proven to himself that those are the only two kinds of games he's leaving the door open yeah 
I don't know. That's if I ever get the opportunity to talk to him, I'm going to ask him about that. Yeah, well, we should go hit him up. He's at NYU. Yeah. So show up at his office later today. Excuse us. <laughs> what is the third kind of game? I'd be like, I've gotten that question a million times. <laughs> like, more of this. I'll reveal it in my will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but going back to the whole rules and winning and that true freedom that's sort of hidden from people once they're already playing the game. I thought that this distinction was interesting about life or death, okay. where he says that most well, actually, he says that no game is actually life or death, because if it's life or death, then you're not choosing to play the game. And if you must play, you cannot play. Right. So in any game that you're playing, which is most things that we are all doing day to day, almost nobody listening to this is ever in a life or death situation right. throughout their day. None of the rules or the prizes are indispensable. Right. They're all dispensable. You don't actually require any of it. And the thing that's also really interesting is the value is derived by being in the game. Yeah. Right. It's that like, too. yeah. I mean, he goes into that a lot more, I think, just pretty soon after this. But it's like those titles are only valuable within those specific games right. that you are playing. But you can quit the game anytime because right. you don't have to play it. Right. But if you remember that, then you will have no motivation to play. Yeah. And so he talks about this self-deception and self-veiling that you have so to true. do, which is really true. Yeah. You do have the self-deception all the time. Yeah. Well, I think that's why meditation is actually really helpful, but it can also be harmful in some ways where it's amazing for helping you realize how few things you're freaking out about matter. Yeah. But then it's also harmful in that you realize how many things you care about also don't matter. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so it can give you like less of that professional drive, which could be good, could be bad depending on depending your on who you are and what you and how far down either spectrum you are. Yeah, exactly. That's actually uh tangent number one of the episode. Let's do it. Uh <laughs> we should have like special music that plays like when it's tangent time, it's like tangent time we should get one of those <laughs> one of those big setups with all the sound effects yeah. of like a tangent button <laughs> anyway, go on we'll get that once we make our patreon account there we go <laughs> <laughs> yeah so the tangent is like i i always think about this when i'm picking books too is like you almost have to be careful what you feed your brain mm. so if you go like too far down the side of like none of the shit really matters yeah then you never want to do anything and then sometimes you get too far down just the like rah 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 like always go 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 kind of feel and then you're you don't remember that like None of this shit really matters. Yeah. <laughs> and you get too far into it. So yeah, it's like a matter of balance. At least for me, I found that like I have to balance what I'm reading or the content I'm consuming just to not fall either way on that spectrum. That was actually part of why I stopped meditating kind of I deliberately. Really okay, I didn't even know you stopped meditating. Yeah, well, I, I did it really religiously for about four months. And then towards the end of it, I realized that I literally had just like no work motivation anymore, mm. right? I was perfectly happy to Your consciousness that yeah, I was I was just like, well, none of that stuff, you know, matters that much. And I'm happy just meditating and like eating well and going to the gym and sort of doing a bare minimum amount of work. And I kind of didn't like being in that mindset too much. Right. And I've definitely gone too far in the other direction, too, where like you get really neurotic about everything, all work all the time. That's not good either. But that finding that middle ground is is tricky. It's the elusive quest because it's really hard to find it. And then yeah. stay on it is even harder because it's constantly shifting. Exactly. Someone once told me an analogy of it's like finding the balance in basically anything. Finding the balance point mm -hmm. is like walking on the edge of a sword as someone's waving the sword around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because it's like, I mean, you know, you constantly have to like find where that middle is and because like life doesn't stay in one place. No, not at all. I mean, that's sort of a lot of like virtue ethics, Aristotelian philosophy, right? Finding that golden mean and then recognizing that you're constantly getting pulled in both ways. Buddhism's yeah. a bit like that too, yeah. right? Yeah, the middle way. So 
Yes. All right. Tangent over. We need a sound effect for that. Boom. <laughs> Back. But yeah, it, this idea of winning within the game and the games, you know, like the definition of a finite game is that there can be a winner for the most part, or there can at least be rankings at the end of it. You yeah. know when it is over, right? It's had this clear... And it's agreed upon by the participants. Exactly. Agreed upon by the participants. But the idea that I thought was kind of fascinating from that is about titles and power, that a title or a power or an accolade or anything is only backward pointing in time. There is no so true. there is no present title or power. There is only something that can be recognition of what was done in the past. Yeah. I mean to make it less abstract, right? Even just take something like football. When you say a player is the MVP, like they always say the reigning MVP. That's last season. Yeah, that's exactly. not this season. There is, they were the is MVP. an MVP. There is going to be an MVP this year, but nobody knows who that is yet. That right. title has not been grasped. But when you say that player is an MVP player, it's always backwards pointing. Right. That Yeah, that was a real, I like when he called that out because we don't think about that. I think, and I mean, be, even beyond sports, we don't even think about that, but it's so true. Well, but you think about like somebody gets a CEO role and I think from the outside, and this is probably where part of the difficulty and perception comes in with believing that achieving our goals will make us happy is that you see somebody who has achieved a thing that you want mm. and then you imagine the feeling of achieving that thing and then you assume that they feel that way all the time right. but to them that time has already passed right. right you might be jealous of someone who is you know ceo of the successful company but to them that's done right. they already they have already that title yeah. and now their goal is something else right. Or, uh, yeah, or like literally anything, I mean, it's right? It's like, all backward uh, pointing. Totally. And it's also like, um, I mean, this might be getting, this is an abstract book, so we'll get abstract here. Like that idea of the delta between something and where you are right now. Mm. So your example of the CEO thing, right? Let's say someone sold their company for like $500 million. And like where I'm sitting right now, that's so far away. Like the delta is like incredibly far away. But as somebody gets closer and closer to that, like, it's not like they wake up one day and it's like, oh, I sold a company for five. Like, they know what their <laughs> company is worth almost that amount. Yeah. So when that event happens, it probably isn't as joyful as somebody who's just getting started would feel that it is because the feeling that that person just getting started is imagining is where they're sitting right now turning into the $500 million company, right? Yeah. But that that doesn't happen overnight. So you slowly edge closer and closer and closer. And then like, I'm guessing like if someone was very convinced their company is worth 500 million and then it gets bought for 500 million, they might feel maybe a sense of relief. They might feel a little bit of accomplishment, but it's probably not like this, like I won the lottery type of feeling and it might not last that long. I mean, probably at that point, it's sort of like finally. Yeah. Right? I mean, uh, <laughs> so like, done. like I just raised a little bit of money yeah. and I know when we closed that, it was like, it didn't really feel like an accomplishment. Like I'll mm -hmm. be completely honest. It didn't feel like it actually just felt like what's next. Like I'm ready right. to actually move and do something. Whereas if you asked me six months ago, I'd be like, oh, it would be kind of cool to like close around. Like, that'd be awesome. But when it actually closed, by the time it closed, I was so convinced that it should be closed and it was moving slower than I was hoping that I didn't feel that like any kind of accomplishment whatsoever. It was just like, I'm ready to work. And I was always looking at forward, right? Right. So, right. but six months ago, Neil was looking for the, oh, I've raised around title and imagining it would feel good. But you know, you're once you're there, you don't feel that. So I totally think you're onto something there. Yeah, well, I think that's why these accomplishments don't make us happy in the long run, right? Because yeah. once we get them, they're done. We don't get to keep getting them. We only get them once. Right? What are your thoughts on like non-discrete title, right? Like um, these examples we're giving are like very easy to define. Mm. Like, okay, MVP or like you sold your company or something. What about games that are like less well-defined or titles that are so like teacher or lawyer, even those are titles, mm. right? Yeah. 
don't know, but I feel like with that too, there would be the day you become a teacher or a lawyer and then every day after that, that's just your life now. Right. So you don't feel that sense of like, oh, I'm a teacher now. Yeah. It's like when my last job ended, right? Like that was really exciting. It's like, oh my God, I'm self-employed, right? But now it's just my life. Right. Right. I don't care anymore. (laughs) It's it's not exciting every day. Yeah. I don't know. I think it'd be hard to find an example where this isn't true, where every day you are reinvigorated in the same way you were when you first won it. Because even something like, uh, and I think the less clearly delineated it is, the more this will be in effect. Because let's say you're a musician and the first time you get, you know, number one, most popular in the US for a song is probably like absolutely amazing ecstatic. But then the next day when you're at number three, it's like, oh, what the fuck happened? Right? No, <laughs> I want one again. It, you'll immediately adjust to that. And then that becomes you, your norm. That becomes your norm. Mm. And then maybe you release another song and it only makes it to number two. Right. And then you're disappointed as well because, oh, well, the last song made it to number one. Right. Right. And right. then eventually another song makes it to number one. And you're like, oh, okay, well, whatever. I've already done that. Right? Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I mean, and it sucks that we're wired that way, but right. we are. I wonder right? why. Why that is like evolutionarily why is it just because it keeps us striving maybe you think yeah. or like i don't know we got all the ambitious ancestors yeah the- it's true two million years of ambition maybe. like winning out i mean that's like you- if you got that self-satisfied feeling after finding like a banana you might end up dying yeah maybe. you could end up dying or I mean, maybe this won't apply as much for women but for men right if you've already like mated with right the exactly most- you'd have less genes that pass on the- yeah exactly yeah. you have to like keep wanting to keep, uh, mate. yeah that is possible That'd be my guess. But anyway, all goes back to evolution. You know, I, I do like explaining things via evolution. Yeah. I wonder I'm sometimes sure. how much of it's like bullshit and how much of it isn't. But I feel like it can't be that much bullshit. Yeah. I think it's a really good heuristic for explaining yeah. things, right? Because if something makes sense evolutionarily, that's probably not a bad guess. I usually think it's a better guess than much more modern interpretations, mm. right? So if you say like, oh, it's because of technology, right? It's like, well, that's probably somewhat derived from the evolutionary side of it as right. well, Some, right? That's why that technology is working in the first place. Exactly. Or, yeah. yeah. It's like a shared um, Like the social cause. media thing. Like people say, oh, it's because of social media. But really, it's not because of social media. It's because yeah. of how human brains are wired. And that's driven by evolution. Right. It's like we're wired to gossip yeah. because of evolution, which is why we like social media. We're compared to others. We're compared or, to others. Yeah. yeah. Worry about social standing. Yeah. All of that. That's not social media's fault. That's just social media is... Taking advantage. That's why yeah. it's been successful. Yes. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Interesting. Well, speaking of social media, no one can play a game alone. All right. So we'll read a little bit from the book here. No one can play a game alone. One cannot be human by oneself. There's no selfhood where there is no community. We do not relate to others as the persons we are. We are who we are in relating to others. Break that one down for us, Nat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that what he's getting at here is that there really is no self. And you're only going to be who you are contextual to the people you're with, right? We're social animals. And in every game, right, whether that's a job or an actual game, or just even like walking down the street is kind of a game, right? There are always going to be other people in one way or another, either physically they're with you, or you'll think about them, then that will affect who you are in the context of that game. You haven't read Carl Jung, right? Or anything about Jung? Maybe we'll do that on a future episode. Future maybe. episode yeah. I kept getting that sense as I was reading this book that like he has read Jung, which I wouldn't, I didn't know that he was a professor of religion, which now makes me convinced that he's read Jung. But before I thought he was philosophy. And so I wasn't sure if he had, I was just like, oh, there's a lot of things in here that are very similar. And I'm not like a, you know, expert on Jung or whatever. I just read a recently a book, his book called the Red Book. 
And he's kind of known as the guy who, I don't know if he invented this or if he kind of popularized it, but the idea of the collective consciousness of humanity. And a lot of it is tied to this. that like There is a self, but it's a self as a part of a greater entity, which is humanity. Yeah, it's a lot deeper than that, but we'll save that for the Red Book episode. And I also need to review it if I'm going to talk about it. Explain it. <laughs> yeah, but that's like the main idea is that like you are self, but your yourself is a part of a greater, like there is no self without the greater humanity, right? So it's very similar to this idea, actually. You can't be human by oneself. Yeah. And this idea that you're always changing. Oh, yeah. Right. Like there is no individual self and there is no fixed self. Right. They're always going to be undergoing some kind of change. It's very fluid. Yeah, there was like the stream and rocks analogy yeah, where he's like, you may imagine yourself as a rock in a stream, but really you are the stream. You are the stream, passing yeah. the rocks. Yeah, <laughs> which is a fun play on the old like Zen concept. Although it's also like Bruce Lee's kind of like be like water. Yeah, right. I'm sure is, you've seen yeah. that. Yeah. It's uh, amazing. Sorry, another tangent. Mm-hmm, tangent two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's also amazing to me as we read more and more of these books, it's like how similar a lot of the ideas are. They're not the same books, though, clearly, but there's like definitely themes that seem to overlap as we go from like one concept to another. Yeah, especially how a lot of stuff I find comes back to Zen or Stoicism or, you know, other ancient philosophy. And I'm sure part of that is book choice on our part and what we're interested in. (laughs) Yeah, but I think part of it, too, is that those ideas you know, there's two sides of it. Those ideas have survived for thousands of years because they are timeless human ideas, right? There's something about those thoughts that keep getting reinvigorated with each successive generation. And also because they have lasted so long, they have influenced so many works, right? That wherever you're drawing inspiration from, there's going to be some chain back to probably Zen or Plato or stoics or right like some of that really eastern religion yeah it's somewhere there there's a chain there yeah Yeah. exactly do you know if there was any co-development between all these different philosophies like did they come in contact with each other or were they developed independently yeah that's a good question because a lot of similar ideas i mean if you read zen buddhism zen i read uh the gita yeah exactly and then i read way of zen and i've obviously read a bunch of the stoics and I was like struck by how many similar concepts there were. They could have been written by the same person. Yeah, it was just like, crazy. Yeah, exactly. It was nuts. Well, I think there was some trade going on back then. Yeah. So there could have been some cross-pollination of ideas. Or it could just be that these are really timeless human, you know, the human struggle with happiness and fulfillment, right, is pretty eternal. So you can imagine that. Yeah, and ever since we discovered the future, then you yeah. have the struggle of. And we have to remember, too, that the written recorded word where we're getting these sources from started in those places around the same time. Right. But, but it could was, be way older than that. Exactly. There yeah. was at least 10,000 years of history before that in yeah. oral tradition. Yeah. And so the stories that lasted during that period were probably the ones and that... And the groups that lasted with that shared mythology, which again, we'll get to that in Sapiens at some yeah. point. But yeah. yeah, that shared mythology idea I really find interesting. And the best, most pragmatic mythologies would have survived, right? Because they, they couldn't write down things. So the right. oral tradition and then only the really useful, like timeless ones are going to make it. Or the ones also that mapped most closely to how human psychology works. Exactly. as well right yeah. so the most useful yeah pragmatic i guess right. at the end of the day would be the ones that survived like if there was one that was like yeah if someone's attacking you like just let them let them yeah, let em, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's like the turn the other cheek thing but it's like i think 
I don't know. I think it's like, it, it would have to go even beyond that. <laughs> this is not, <laughs> or if there was one that was just like, kill everybody around you, right? Like yeah, that's probably that group got us exterminated first chance someone could. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So these might've been like the happy medium. The ideas that went out, right. Yeah. Middle path. Uh, I thought the war thing was really interesting in this chapter mm-hmm. because yeah. that was initially when uh, I was reading the first chapter, I was like, yeah, but like, what if like X, right? Like right. what if it was someone who attacks, you know, then it's not really a game, right? It's someone attacking you. Uh, the point he made here, I think this is a quote from the book, is no nation can go to war until it has found another that can agree to the terms of the conflict. Each side must therefore be in complicity with the other. Before I can have an enemy, I must persuade another to recognize me as an enemy. That sentence clicked for me when he yeah. said it that way. Because I think it's part of the issue with like terrorism. It's like very hard to like can't get an agreement on what the terms of what the war is, which is what makes it so hard to win. Right. It's kind of like, I don't know. There's like no win. Like what is a win? Right. And there's no clear organization. Right. Like who are you actually fighting? fighting? Yeah. Which is what makes, I think, the war on terror, you know, go on for so long is like there's no clear enemy. There's no clear rules. Whereas in a normal war, like a nation versus another nation you kind of like there's rules i mean there's like a one side will surrender when they're yeah. done and then then you're done but who can surrender in like, like the no, war on terror right. right who do you sign a treaty with and there's so many different groups right i mean like for a long time it was al-qaeda was the main one now it's isis but then there's like all these other smaller groups that are out there so even if you defeat isis and al-qaeda there's all these somebody else probably take up the mantle right exactly so there's almost no winning and when he mentioned when he said it this way it really clicked for me. That was like, that's why it's been going on for so long. Cause we don't really know. Like there's no other side that's agreed to the, to the conflict. To the conflict. Right. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> and probably more on the individual level too. Right. Before I can have an enemy, I must persuade another to recognize me as an enemy. Right. It's like people who are going on the internet and picking fights with <laughs> others. Right. Yeah. That fight doesn't really start until the other person agrees to join in on the fight and respond feed the trolls feed the trolls exactly <laughs> but a lot of the time i mean the best way to end it is to simply ignore them or to block them or whatnot because then they are not your enemy there's, there's no one to fight there's against. no engagement there's no game right you haven't agreed to the rules of engagement <laughs> yeah <laughs> just ended it yeah it's kind of like the being like water thing there too right yeah it's exactly like, like i don't know water can be very easy to move aside or it can also destroy you yeah <laughs> so yeah <laughs> I think this was in the same chapter was uh, where he took this idea and took it to business and organization theory. Okay. It takes the idea back to like titles. And uh, I think this is also a quote from the book where he said, large bureaucracies grow out of the need to verify the numerous entitlements of the citizens of that society. And you could take that to be just like a government thing. And, you know, you could say, well, that's to like verify like people, you know, like who has property in a given society or who's accomplished certain things. But I actually took this also to mean for businesses, right? As businesses get larger, people don't know each other directly and they also definitely don't know each other's accomplishments directly. So when you have a company where, I mean, uh, when I was at mom trusted, like it was five of us in a room when I joined and like everybody knew what the other people were working on. Like I'm sure people like the developer who sat across from me knew my sales pitch almost as well as I did by that point. (laughs) Um, whereas like, okay, you scale that up like hundred X right now you're at 500 people. I probably, as a salesperson, wouldn't even know the developers. Exactly. Right. And you have so, no idea which one's good and which one's bad. Yep. So then right. you need titles like senior developer or backend developer, frontend developer, right? Like, I mean, you'd start to need these titles, right, yeah. to classify people so you know how to relate to them. Gives you a little, like, shortcut. Yeah. It helps you know. Exactly. Right. Like, I may to. know, okay, Nat does content for us. 
if we're like a five person company, I might know exactly what kind of content he does. So when I have a need that's in the content realm, I know exactly who to go to. But if we were in like a 5,000 person company, I'd be looking for someone with like marketing director in their title or like, it's all based on the titles. Like I don't know yeah. Nat from, you know, Matt. Like it doesn't matter. <laughs> like the name doesn't signify anything to me when it's a larger organization. So bureaucracy is almost necessary as the company yeah, gets bigger was, in order to help like filter people. Yeah, which was like fascinating to me because I like, I don't know, I always kind of assume bureaucracy is bad and unnecessary. Yeah. But this actually made me realize like within these certain societies or organizations, mm -hmm. it is serving a purpose. I'm, I'm sure it can be minimized to a certain degree, but like you need it how, in some form, I guess. I wonder how the companies that do minimize their bureaucracy manage to do it. Because are you familiar with Valve, the software company? They mostly make video games. Okay. So it's definitely, I think it's like the most, it's one of the most profitable like per employee businesses in the US. They make Steam, which is like the iTunes oh, for video yeah. games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. They're a complete holacracy, like zero bureaucracy. Like no titles. No titles, wow. nothing. At least that's how they describe themselves to the outside. Uh, and there's a great book. It's like the Valve Employee Handbook that explains how they operate and do all that. I'm definitely going to check that out. Yeah, it's, it's very, it's a quick read. But I always wonder, you know, and this makes me wonder about it more. Yeah, we'll put it in show notes. It will be in show notes. <laughs> all right, I'll grab it. Majorthinkpodcast.com. <laughs> but yeah, I wonder how they get around this problem. How do you manage the teams when you don't know, like, do you know who's good at what? Do you know how many employees they have? I think it's a few hundred at least. Oh, yeah. Right? So it's not like everybody knows it's everybody. Yeah. Because I know what's the number, like they say, like a tribal society. 150. Is, yeah, 150. Yeah, so I know like there. up to that, you can probably... Probably get away with it. Minimal. Yeah. But beyond that... But beyond that, yeah, yeah, it'd be so hard. I mean, That's why I was curious if you were going to say like 100 or something. I was like, oh, okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. But. Zappos tried to do it too. They tried to get rid of all... Yeah, the holacracy. Yeah, right? it didn't they're, work for them at all. Yeah. It was like a complete mess. Right, I think like 30% well. of their managers and stuff quit. Yeah. <laughs> just couldn't deal with it. And startups have tried it too. And I, you know, most startups I've heard from or at least or talked to that try to do it it just doesn't end up working out that well the interesting thing too the more you think about this and, and it, it seems obvious in hindsight but startups are a lot more like dictatorships than democracies mm -hmm. and big companies are actually much more like democracies than dictatorships yeah, like honestly a startup should be like a dictatorship exactly right yeah. exactly yeah it's the only way you move fast i mean right. people forget a democracy is a really weak form of government and slow and slow. like doesn't change quickly like yeah, if you want to do things fast dictatorship, dictatorship all the way right exactly yeah just, you know usually ends up in like millions of people dying when you <laughs> take it up to the, <laughs> the country level <laughs> i was gonna make a a bad Facebook analogy, but anyway, I'll skip that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, but then we can apply this to schools too, right? So talking about bureaucracy helps create like heuristics for who's qualified and who's not. Yep. Schools that way too. Right? Yeah, that's true. It's like, what school did you go to? What major did you do? It's yeah. like a heuristic. What's your GPA? Yeah, it's a heuristic for figuring out how smart somebody is who you're exactly. talking to. And it's just, it's a finite game that people can play within. And I, I love, I think this is basically a quotation from the book where he says that schools are a form of finite game to the degree that they give ranked awards to those who win degrees from them. Those awards qualify graduates for competition in still higher games like prestigious colleges and then professional schools beyond that with a continuing sequence of higher games in each profession and so forth. Yeah, I so love that. I also love how he says win degrees. Yeah. Like win degrees. It's not earned it's degrees. It's not earned. It's win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so easy to get in that infinite loop of finite games yeah. where you're just sort of winning one game to play the next game to play the next game. And it goes back to what we were saying in the intro, how there is always the option to not play the game. Right. 
right? Or right. to play a different game, right? right? And there are always other games. And instead of playing within the boundaries, everyone always has this option to expand the boundaries, right? right? Or play a different game with different boundaries right. or quit the game, right? Yeah. So, it's up to you. And also this analogy of just thinking about it as a game yeah. is very helpful, I think. Think of everything as a game. Yeah. I find it so helpful. Yeah. <laughs> Have you read... Uh, it's a wait but why article i think it's the elon musk one on the cook and the chef oh yeah, elon yeah, musk's yeah. secret sauce yeah. and he's got that whole section there on grand theft life right yeah where <laughs> i remember that you, yeah. you kind of you want to think of life as a video game yeah because if you did actually think of it as a video game where you know you still have to like not die and you had to eat and drink and you know well, that's part of the game kids it's part of the game exactly uh but you would take a lot more risks right mm -hmm. or you would like play more aggressively yeah there's a post that i have not published and i have intermittently been writing over the past year which is uh it's one of the like i'm sure you have those as well where you like revisit an idea yeah. but it's not quite developed enough to like release the post right anyway mine is about how you only have uh time for about like eight to ten major projects in your life mm. but if you think about it that way that actually is a pretty large number yeah because when you're in each individual project it feels like the only thing it's like oh shit like if this startup doesn't work right like I'm ruined. Like it's gonna suck. You know, like you get so myopic, or you get too uh, big picture, and you start thinking that like whatever you're gonna work on is what you're gonna work on for the rest of your life. But you have time easily to do eight to ten right. in your life. But that's like finite enough where you take each one seriously, and you don't just like chase things that are like you know you're not interested in, or that are just gonna be a waste of time. But it's large enough that each individual one is not like gonna make or break your entire life. Yeah. True. Yeah. So anyway, that's an idea I've been playing with. I haven't finished it, but it's... Uh, <laughs> no, it's a good thought. I, it's kind of tangentially related. I skimmed through Seth Godin's book, The Dip, last night. And it's basically a book about how whenever you start a new project or start learning something new, it's super fun and awesome yeah. in the beginning. <laughs> and then you'll very quickly hit the point where it just sort of sucks and yep. you really want to quit. You don't know what to do. And part of the premise of the book is that in a lot of those, you actually just should quit. Because if you're not going to be the best in the world at it, or if you're not going to make it one of those projects like you were just saying oh yeah then you may as well just get rid of it and move on to the next one right oh yeah and i don't mean you only have time to try eight to ten different things in your life exactly yeah you but you can only fully invest yes, in eight exactly. to ten like you can get really good at those things you so you need really to be selective yeah yeah and i was gonna say i was like uh i was like i think one of our friends wrote a blog post that both of us really like about this idea justin's like fight through the suck thing oh yeah fight through the suck yeah, that's a good one i, I like that but i always yeah. think about that too Sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find it's always easier to make those assessments in reverse. Oh, oh 100%. 100%. <laughs> it's, it's so easy to look back a year later and be like, thank God I quit that when I did. Yeah. Or thank God I stuck with that when I did. But I think you would feel that way regardless of what you picked. Yeah, well, definitely. It's right? The cognitive dissonance thing. <laughs> a lot of narrative fallacy there. Yeah. yeah. It'd be hard to quit something and then look back on it a year later and be like, I really wish I hadn't quit I, that. I think this is on an earlier episode, but I think I said life is a narrative fallacy, and it is. Yeah, it definitely it is. is. Like, what we think our life is is totally a narrative fallacy. Oh, yeah. It's not real. And if anybody doesn't know what narrative fallacy is, we'll link that in the show notes as well. Oh, yeah. And or you can go listen to our anti-fragile episode. We have a long <laughs> segment on narrative fallacy in there. And then you can go read all the Taleb books. Exactly. He coined that term, right? Did he make it up? I think he did. Did he? I believe so. Okay. I think if you look on the Wikipedia for narrative fallacy, it cites him. He coined that? I think so. Wow. And this podcast should be the Taleb podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think he got a shout out in like every episode so far. <laughs> uh, Taleb, Stoics, Zen Buddhism. To be fair, we're early on. Going off of the bureaucracy business work stuff, I love this idea of wealth where it's just like with the titles 
that it is not something that you achieve and constantly achieve. It's something you have achieved. Mm. That's uh, true. It's always an indication of your past. It's, it's always, like, yeah, it's, it's what you already on. have in right. the bank, right? Exactly. So yeah. And then his point that we display the success of what we have done by not having to do anything, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. The more wealth you have, the less that you do, right? And not just lying around, you know, eating Cheetos, but having a driver and having a private jet and having somebody deliver groceries, having someone to cook for you, right? Yep. The more wealth you have, the less you, you have do, to do, right? And then he also gives this example that I love about how <laughs> the wealthier you are, the more you get in other people's way. Yeah. So you get a huge house, takes up a lot of space, yep. or monument. they build a monument yeah. to you in the middle of the town square, and then everyone has to like drive around it really inconveniently or walk past it. Yep. And so, yeah, literally, you display wealth by not doing things and getting in other people's way. So, And I also like how he calls out that it's apparent to infinite players that wealth is not possessed as much as it is performed. Right. Because someone could have all the wealth in the world in their bank account, but if they're not doing any of these things... You don't they, think of them as wealthy. You don't think of them as wealthy, yeah. exactly. So it's really a performance more than a possession. State. Right? Yeah, I mean, it is a possession, but it's not really doing anything to others. Unless you're using it. You can be technically well. wealthy, yeah. but you will not be thought of wealthy right. unless you were doing these things. Right. Like if you had, I don't know, like I'm sure that there's people probably that we know who have pretty decent sized net worths now who are still living like startup lifestyle. And um, well, Warren Buffett's a perfect Yeah, actually, he's a great example of that. If he yeah. didn't do all this. He's McDonald's for breakfast, right? And like, I'm not yeah. saying that's like the best health thing to do. Not terrible. It's, and he still lives in like that same house yeah. and drives the old car. He drives, right? That's another yeah, thing. It's drives. not like he is a driver. Yeah. And if he didn't do all his philanthropy stuff, I have know. literally no idea that he I was wealthy. I've only been, like, I read um, The Snowball. Have you read that? No. It's, so it's not an autobiography, it's a biography, but it's very, very well done. Um, that may be an interesting one for us to cover if we want to do a biography at some okay. point. But he wasn't really attention-seeking. It seemed like that happened later on in his life as he got more into philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that, I still don't think it's like he's not choosing to go be that sort of out there. Right. But it's like now at this point, like the returns that Berkshire Hathaway has gotten, the philanthropy he's doing, almost can't help it. But the fact that yeah. he's in Nebraska even, as like in, in the world's, uh, is he probably the world's most successful investor, if not one of the most? Yeah, it's definitely yeah. top three. You just don't think of Nebraska as being yeah. like the place, like you would think New York, San Francisco, maybe if it's VC, London, Dubai, like That's Shanghai, you would not think Omaha. Tokyo. You would not think Omaha, <laughs> Nebraska. Yeah, so you're totally right. Like it's not necessarily a performance for him. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And coming back to the idea of boundaries, which we touched on a bit earlier, but I like this way of thinking where you can either think of the game that you're within as having a boundary or a horizon, right? And infinite players think horizontally, not not horizontal, horizontal, which is like, it looks oh, weird when yeah. it's spelled out, but you have to think in terms of where is the horizon and how can I expand it, right? How can I see further Yeah. as opposed to this is the world that I am stuck within and it really clear or it really captures that problem of there always being a bigger goal too, because no matter how much wealth you have or whatever titles you achieve, all you have done is expanded your horizon. Yeah, you but there is still a that. horizon, right? You can never reach the horizon. It's a function of vision. And so right. if you think it's of, always in the distance. Exactly. It's always in the distance. It's always something that you're moving towards, but you never reach, obviously. What if the earth's flat? I, I know. Oh. I was about to say much of <laughs> the chagrin of flat earth. <laughs> if Kyrie Irving is listening to this. Yeah. Please 
please explain that one to us. <laughs> uh, but but then this distinction that every move an infinite player makes is towards the horizon, mm. but every move a finite player makes is within a boundary. Mm, I like that. Right? They're technically the same thing, right? You could think of it as this ring around where you are. But the boundary would imply there's a destination. It's like it is a place, right? Well, that you can reach I, the boundary. I more mean that the finite player thinks it is a place. Mm, okay. And the infinite player recognizes that it's only a horizon that it's going to keep extending yeah and i feel like that mental shift is one of the really important little like heuristical takeaways from the book is that whenever you think you have a boundary you have a horizon and so learning to think of it as a horizon not as a boundary is like very helpful and i actually think this relates to the idea of bliss from our power of myth uh, episode where remember there was that quote from the quran which was like um i'm paraphrasing but do you think you can enter the garden of bliss without paying the price that so many others before you have and um I always took that to mean like the idea of bliss, like garden of bliss, for example, is not a place. Like it's not like a destination you're reaching. It's like a state of mind almost that you're entering and that it's like derived from being in the process, like being in the game, but it's not a destination. So it's kind of, it's similar to this idea of like the infinite player recognizing that that's going to keep moving, that it's not a place you're trying to go to. And the goal of the infinite player is to continue the play. Continue the game. Exactly. Right. And so you want to be thinking of expanding the horizons, continuing to play with them as opposed to within the boundaries. Right. And then that definitely ties back to the bliss. And uh, I think it ties back to that general heaven and hell metaphor that we talked about in Power of Myth 2, where if you don't think of heaven and hell as places, but states of mind, Mm. It's really helpful because if you are behaving in this, you know, godly, holy way, you probably will be really happy. Right. Right. You're probably going to have like an amazing life. Yeah. (laughs) But if you're acting, you know, in the ways that you would think of land you in hell, you're not going to be very happy. Yeah. Right. Probably have a bunch of diseases. Like it's probably not. People won't trust you. Right. (laughs) You're like probably in jail. Yeah. Bad news. Right. That will be hell on earth. So. Dang, all this stuff's connected. I know. It's cool being able to start relating the episodes between themselves now. Well, and it relates back to that idea of growth, too, because the difference between a boundary and a horizon is that a horizon grows, but a boundary is like an opposition, right? It's a wall. Yeah. And so if you're thinking in terms of boundaries, there literally cannot be any growth because... Well, that's the most you can go up to. Yeah, that's as far as you can go. That's all you're seeing, right? So, I mean, going back to the college example, if you're thinking in within the boundary of GPA, once you get that 4.0, you will stop trying to learn anything because you were only thinking in terms of that boundary. But if you're thinking of it horizontally, right, of like total learning, then that part almost doesn't matter because there's so much more learning to be done beyond it or, or with income, right? So if you think, uh, well, the most I can make at my job is, you know, let's say you go in and you get, you know, like a 50K a year salary and you're trying to get a 10% raise next year, right? Your boundary is that 10% increase, but the horizon is infinite, right? right? Like you could go out and start an amazing company and be making millions next year. But if you confine your thinking to that one boundary, there can be basically no growth or extremely limited growth. Totally. And I mean, you also see this with even with things like time. Like you always hear people say like, um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I've said this too. We're like, oh, I don't have enough time, right? But it's like, you only don't have enough time within the boundaries of what you're already doing, right? Like, like college is a great example. Like, um, I remember like I, after freshman year, I kind of was off the GPA train. I'd kind of like, I wasn't playing that game anymore. Let's yeah. put it that way. Um, 
and you realize you have so much time in college. That was like, okay, when I started the company, that was like when I started like reading a lot more. And I remember I'd always have like friends ask like, well, how do you have time to do all this stuff? <laughs> and then it's like, to me, it was like a dumb question. I'm like, I have 24 hours in the day. Like, you know, I go to some classes. I don't go to some classes, like plenty of time. But then to them, it's like, you got to get good grades. You got to attend all your classes. Then like, yeah, where is the time to start a company and like read and like do all this other stuff? So if you're playing that game within the boundaries of that game, there's not any time. But if you start playing with the boundaries, then you can expand your how much time you do have. Yeah. And I think on this topic of growth and boundaries, I think this is something that shows up at least a ton in working out and exercise. Mm. But I think in everything, he or this author, I guess, is the first one I've seen really explicitly put this in like a general enough way that's not like just in the domain of exercise or just in the domain of like writing or something where he says that one cannot move beyond a boundary without being resisted. And that clicked for me. It's like, if you're not feeling the resistance, quote unquote, the resistance at all, you're probably not at a boundary. And that's so easy to think about for exercise, right? I mean, you know, if like, it's easy to push a weight up that you're like, okay, I'm probably not getting any stronger. If I, you know, if you like normally bench 185 and you're benching 135, like you're probably not getting that much stronger from the 135. I'm sure there's caveats. So exercise people like don't tweet at us saying, oh, (laughs) you can go slow. I'm sure there's caveats, but I'm just saying in general, if you're not going up against kind of what you know to be your limits and more importantly, what you feel to be your limits, you're probably not growing. Well, yeah, you see people who work out a lot, but never seem to lose weight or never seem to get any stronger. Yeah. Right. And that's pretty much always going to be a function of not actually pushing against their limits. Yeah. Right. It goes back to like the anti-fragile episode. But it's also like, you know, like you as an individual know, it's hard Mm -hmm. for someone outside. I mean, someone can tell in the aggregate, like if they zoom out, like your exercise example, like you can tell if you look at someone over the course of a year and they haven't gotten any lighter or stronger or something, but the individual would know if they're struggling or not. Like if it feels easy, they're probably like, you're not growing. Yeah. And I think that applies for like anything new that you're trying to do is like really only happens when you're uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, You're saying the anti-fragile what? Well, no, I'm, I think it is kind of similar to the ideas of anti-fragile in that there has to be that struggle in order for the boundaries to expand. Mm, yep. Right. And I mean, the working out example is a perfect one, right? If you're not actually stressing your body, it's not going to get stronger. Right. And then like going back to your time too, I think that that's a perfect example of the concept we discussed in the beginning about artificial boundaries and recognizing that you can conform to rules that you never consciously chose to follow. Oh yeah, that's true. Right? You never like consciously thought of those as yeah. rules. You never, I mean, sticking with the school example, right? A lot of those students never sat down and said, I am choosing to make grades a priority. Right. They just were told that and then accepted it and never really questioned it. And they might've been still- told that in elementary school yeah, or exactly. something, you know, like, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of like growing up super religious and then, yeah. And you never question the Bible yeah. or the Quran or whatever. And like, okay, well have, you have good reason to, because that seems absurd to challenge it. Right. Cause but it's like, you're it's, still playing a finite game. You're still true. in that world and you are still like every day that you play it, you are still choosing to play it. Yeah. And so then the real challenge is, you know, as we're talking about this, what finite games are we within? What boundaries are we imposing on ourselves that we have not questioned? Right. I'm because sure there are all of us have them. Yeah. Oh, Certainly. Yeah. And that's sort of the, I thought one of the most thought provoking parts of this book was where am I thinking in terms of boundaries and not horizons? Right. Yep. Which there certainly are. Oh yeah. Which I'm sure we all have. And that's like, I don't know. I mean, that's a huge challenge, probably a challenge you have to keep struggling with your whole life. Yeah. And keep questioning it and not letting yourself be confined. Yeah. That's where all the growth happens. All right. This next section is kind of odd. 
I did not totally get this whole section. This is one that I think made me want to reread it. Yeah. Because I think it's something I'm missing here. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, not fully. I don't think I'm fully missing it. But it seemed to be deeper than I might have been capable of understanding. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, the, the section is called, <laughs> I am the genius of myself. And it opens with, I am the genius of myself, the poetess who composes the sentences I speak and the actions I take. It is I, not the mind, that thinks. It is I, not the will, that acts. It is I, not the nervous system, that feels. So it almost is like the opposite of his original idea of self. But it's not really the opposite. Yeah. It's, it's connected to... It's sort of... I, Okay, so what helped me a little bit was this later section where he says that Hamlet was not reading when he said he was reading words. A dog taught to shake does not shake your hand. A robot can right. say words but does not say them to you. Where it's, and I think we've referenced this before, but there's this uh, article from in the Philosophy of Mind by Nagel called like What It's Like to Be a Bat. Okay, I haven't read that. I think. Or maybe I have back in a while. Maybe back, back in the day. Yeah. But the, the premise of the article is that I could put you in a full VR simulation where you're flying around and you're flapping, you know, your imaginary bat wings and using echolocation and all of that. But even with a perfect simulation of the bat life projected onto you, there is still something else, right? Something that it is like mm. to be a bat. Yeah, it's always a metaphor or like an analogy. Yeah, well, as opposed to like you are not actually the bat. Right. And you can get infinitely close to feeling like a bat, but there's that asymptote of actual yeah. batness. You can't be right. the actual bat. Yeah. You can't actually be that. And so I think maybe what he's saying here is that the mind is thinking, or okay, you know, we'll say the brain is thinking, but there is something a bit beyond that, which is the I. Yeah. And that's what's really thinking. And the will is involved in acting, but it's really the full, it's the I, right? The whole myself that is acting you know with so the will as a piece of it so what are your thoughts then on like that the whole this is that's related it's a tangent but not that much of a tangent. okay so we'd have to have a separate noise for that one <laughs> um but uh like what are your thoughts then on like this idea that you can upload consciousness to a computer and Ooh. replicate i know we're getting into dangerous territory yeah. here but i think it's very much connected right because it's right. like kind of exactly what you just said with this asymptote idea of like you can get infinitely close let's say you can do a perfect simulation of the brain all the neurons everything i don't know what happens well i, I mean this is like a big rabbit hole we can go down but he's let's I mean, go he's down essentially it. if it'll make you think yeah no I, I'm, <laughs> I'm i'm ready this all is right. like this is a big part of what we studied at uh cmu in the philosophy program oh interesting. because yes yeah, so like cmu's philosophy program is very philosophy of mind and ai focused because it's such a tech school mm. so we talk about this stuff a lot and I mean, basically, there's two schools of thought on this. And the Cartesian from Descartes is probably the one that a lot of people are familiar with to some extent, which is that there's two separate things. There's the brain and the body, and then there's the mind. And that's his whole, I think, therefore I am, right? Is he's arguing in that piece that because I am a thinking thing, and I can imagine everything else in my reality being fabricated by some, he uses like a demon, right? He says like some demon could be making up this physical reality, but my mind is still here thinking things. Therefore, there is a mind and it is separate from my body. And that is the only thing that I know I can be sure of. Uh, because you wouldn't be thinking if there was no mind. Right. My hands could be fake. That could be imagined. My right. body could be fake. You could be fake. But I know that I am thinking these things. Therefore, there is a mind, right? And so that's where you get this idea of Cartesian duality, that there's a mind and a body. And part of the argument of this whole, okay, we can upload ourselves to computers is that you can take that mind and that consciousness and then transfer it onto a different medium, right? That's problematic because it would imply that one of two things must be happening. It means that either your brain supervenes on your mind 
which means that your brain functions are a result of decisions made in your mind, that your mind is existing in some form, telling your brain what to do, and then you do things and think things. And we just know flat out that's not true, right? Like every single test that's been done on this shows that you do things and then you tell your mind why you did them, right? Or your, your mind makes up an exclamation in pretty much every case. So there's really no mind telling the brain what to do. But then you could say, okay, well, consciousness is separate from the brain or separatable in that we can, you know, the, the mind is there, but the brain is telling it stuff. And then we're thinking about it. It's like, okay, maybe we don't have full control over the brain, but we're still here thinking these things. Yeah. Then that's problematic because where is it, right? It either is a function of the brain or it's like this immortal soul type idea. Right. And, you know, people definitely believe that and that's fine. But the idea that you could upload your soul to a computer seems odd. So then you get into this issue where it's like, all right, maybe there is some consciousness that is not simply a manifestation of brainwaves. And I think there's a very strong case to be made that there really is no self, right? You're conscious, but there's no independent free will. So it's like self. an emergent property of the system exactly. as opposed to an individual system itself. Yeah. Like there's no, like you can't like extract yourself. Exactly. Basically. Right. It's literally just the brain and you. And people don't like that because that means that you have no free will. You're not an independent thinking thing. You're just acting out whatever your brain does. But the evidence from a lot of the research pretty strongly indicates that's the case. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then you could upload your consciousness to a computer, but it would not be a continuing consciousness because there is really no self. There's no you in the way that you think of a you here experiencing these things. There's just these patterns of brainwaves and thoughts, and we can duplicate that on a computer. And to everyone outside, we would have moved you into the computer, but there would not be any continuity of thought from your brain into that computer. So is this like the thought experiment of like the teleportation exactly. thing where it's like, yeah. yeah. Uh, and for those who are not familiar, it's like this idea of to make you teleport, you somehow have to get like reconstruct. Like, so on one side, let's say I'm going to teleport from New York to LA. The Neil that is uploaded in New York needs to basically be killed at some point in that upload and then reconstructed on the LA side. And even if you could do that with 100% fidelity, do you know that you or me, I guess in this case, would not actually be the one dying yeah. in New York and then some other person who to the outside world looks exactly like me, acts exactly like me, but is not me, is the one that's reconstructed. So reality would end for me yeah. if I'm you know, using self, like the Neil that I am talking for right now. Yeah, um, yeah it gets very confusing, but yeah, it's an interesting question. Well, and the biggest problem with it is that even if we developed that technology, there would be absolutely no way to tell on the outside which was happening, yep. right? You would only know by trying it. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm not getting in that thing. Yeah, <laughs> no way. Uh, so yeah, it, it can only be judged externally until you hop in the machine. And I mean, maybe you want to do it, maybe you don't. I, to be fair, I think you could probably make an argument of, okay, well, we do a neural lace so your brain can interface with the computer and then you still have yourself, but you also have this like brain appendage. And then you could imagine a virtual reality simulation of some sort projected onto your brain via the neural lace in which you move from your body into purely appendage. But it gets so weird because then like what's moving or is there anything to move or does that never make sense? Right. right? And I think there's a really strong case to be made that there is nothing that 
can move. There is no moving of anything. And so you would need the brain to be operating the machine. Or if you don't need the brain, then you never need it there in the first place. You can just duplicate somebody on the machine anyway. And then that whole transference thing is just bogus. But again, you can only know or you can only observe from the outside. You can't actually see if your brain continues because well, we would have no idea what you were talking about with the bet. You can try to simulate it. You can put yourself into a VR machine. But there is that sort of asymptote to like, which you can keep approaching, but you can never quite reach exactly. the bat. There will be a crossover point and either we can do it or we can't, but there'd be absolutely no way to tell unless you tried it yourself. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that was know. an awesome tangent. Okay. Well, we'll have to do another episode on like mind brain supervenience and oh, yeah. duality and all that. I say episode, the, the bat. That could be a good one. Yeah. About. We could yeah. do the bat or we could even do Descartes or we could do both or we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. Back to this section, I'm the genius of myself. He actually, yeah, he kind of alludes to this whole duality, monality issue, but then he doesn't talk about it that much. Again. Again, yeah. yeah. He just sort of says it's there and then goes on to other things. But then he switched over to sex. Yeah, he talks a lot about sexuality. Yeah. Which I thought was pretty interesting, like talking about how it's a very special kind of game and that it's the only game where the victory is i think he uses the term ownership right well it is the defeated opponent yeah basically the, is what it is the prize is yeah. the defeated opponent yeah, yeah exactly. this is one that i struggled with in terms of like fully understanding it like i felt like there was some things many things going over my head here <laughs> but i still found it to be interesting because it is somewhat related to the idea of seduction right, right? in a lot of ways where it is a game right like i mean in like it, it totally is a game with its own set of rules. Like they're not like explicitly written down anywhere. But again, there are rules to the game that you play. And uh, Robert Greene's Art of Seduction is a pretty good one. I know the yeah. game that uh, Neil Strauss wrote, right, outlined some of the rules. Like there are rules in the game. So in his sense of comparing it to a game, that's not. I wouldn't say that's off. Like that, that seems spot on. Yeah, that that did. And it I, was more like the other part, like the infinite player part <laughs> of sexuality that I yeah. was a little, I was tripping on a little bit. Maybe I'm a finite player in that game, for sure. Yeah, I'm sure most people are, right? (laughs) Yeah, the infinite players do not play within sexual boundaries, but with sexual boundaries. So they cannot be said to be heterosexual, homosexual, anything. They're just always thinking horizontally. Yeah, but which I didn't get in this context, which... Yeah, I'm not sure who... Because you can't even say it's bisexual then, because that's still a boundary. Yeah, to be fair, I know a couple people who are like that. But like, like, what is that? Like, how does that manifest? Well, so at least in one of the people I'm thinking of, they're just extremely curious about all of it. Okay. And they're, you know, happy to try anything and yeah. they'll go to like parties. Oh, so they're playing with the boundaries. Boundary, they're playing with the yeah. boundaries, yeah. right? They're seeing, okay, what am I into? What am I not into? As opposed to just being like, no, I'm heterosexual and I only do right. that thing. So categorizing themselves. Yeah, basically. exactly. Yeah. If you're defining categories and you're willing to explore beyond these typical boundaries, I feel like that at least crosses into the realm of infinite sexuality. Right. Yeah. I thought uh, maybe that's in a different section, but there was he was talking about how society plays a role in a lot of this. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's his first point here that we enter into oh, societal yeah, yeah, arrangements yeah, yeah. by ways of sexual roles. Yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting that the the king is the father of the country, right? But your father isn't really thought of as the king of the family, right? right? I'm sure some dads like to think of themselves yeah. that way. But <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not the terminology we normally use, right. but we do use it in reverse, uh, and that's probably where some of this whole like patriarchy stuff comes from too is that the uh, if we go you know way back very traditional male female and like family roles have basically just continually gotten played out into larger and larger societal hierarchical roles since then and it kind of makes sense in some ways in that what he's talking about here is that the most serious struggles are for sexual property Mm. where 
we kind of know this intuitively that you could win everything, right? He says empire, fortune, and fame. But if you lose love, right. you've lost everything, right. Right? right? And there's so many stories and parables about that where you sacrifice all affection, romantic or not, in pursuit of, you know, worldly accomplishment. Some goal exactly. or whatever, yeah. And then they end up unhappy at the end of it. Exactly, yeah. And, and you're totally right. And so that's, again, a place where probably like myths are again kind of informing like there's plenty of myths like that exact storyline that you just outlined you know where um and it's almost like a warning right, right of this explicit idea that he he outlines here it won't make you happy yeah and what about this part on parents like i thought i mean it was interesting yeah where, uh he said like your parents are almost this like abstract audience that you can i guess that even when they're not there anymore you're still trying to impress. Right, right. Um, and you kind of see that, right? Like, And it, I also thought the thing that's interesting, even though he doesn't say it explicitly, is like the idea of parents is different than your parents. <laughs> yeah, there, there is this ephemeral parents yes. looking over you that you're thinking of, and then there are the actual parents. Right. And I like that he makes the distinction that our emphasis is not on what our parents thought, but on what we thought they thought, right? Yep. Those are two different things. It's the meta game, basically, there. Yeah. yeah, and because we're focused on what we think they thought, that belief and that persistence and that you know desire to prove something to them persists even after their death, right? Even after their death, or even if they are impressed with what you are exactly. doing or something, it's like a lot of times that's not in itself satisfying because you're not actually trying to impress the person, trying to impress the idea of the person yeah, who you person. can never impress. Right, because you keep <laughs> shaping it to right. whatever, right? And it probably ends up being a projection of your own insecurity yeah. more than anything or yeah. maybe it's the source of your insecurities probably a bit of both yeah right yeah it was interesting but yeah this chapter in general was one that i um the genius in myself it's one of the chapters that made me think i need to read the book one more yeah, time yeah exactly it was very abstract i think the last thing i'd say on sexuality that was interesting was this idea of that the triumph of finite sexuality is to be liberated from play into the body so the triumph of finite sexuality is getting to have sex right but then the essence of infinite sexuality is to be liberated into play with the body, where it's not so much the achieving sex is... Mm, so it's the, not like the goal. It's, it's not, not like the goal. Yeah. It's the game itself. I guess it goes back to the idea of titles and prizes. and Yeah. It's like getting beyond that. Getting beyond just the, oh, you know, I had sex with them and just focusing on like the horizontal expansion of sexuality itself. Those are very different mindsets very different I games think, to have. Yeah. To go back to his <laughs> analogy <laughs> there. But yeah, they are, I mean, they are. Exactly. Or, and then he, he gives this distinction that in finite sexuality, I relate to you as a body. And in infinite sexuality, I relate to you in your body. Like you're relating to the other self as right. opposed to... Through sexuality as yeah. opposed to treating them as an object of sexual victory. Right. Or like an object in general. Yeah. Or an object in general. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think we can probably move on to a finite game occurs within a world, though. Yeah. This one was a little less, a little less abstract. Yeah, I mean, this one was very like concrete, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> comparatively, especially. Exactly. <laughs> well, and it goes back to some of the things we've talked about before: that infinite being all about expanding horizons and continual exploration and growth and challenge. But then each finite game has this world that it's within. So he opens with uh, a finite game is within a world. The fact that it must be limited temporally, numerically, and spatially means that there is something against which the limits stand. There is an outside to every finite game. Its limits are meaningless unless there is something to be limited, unless there is a larger space, a longer time, a greater number of possible competitors. So basically, all finite games have these worlds. The playing field, 
the time of play, the rules themselves, right? It's like all, in a video game, the actual world. You yeah, know, exactly. It's all, yep. it's all the limits that you're choosing to play the game within. And yeah. it goes back to that, you know, there are the boundaries that you can play the game inside of if you're playing finitely, or if you're going beyond the boundaries and expanding them, then you're playing infinitely. Or it's also like, I also took it in the fact that like there had this whole thing where he says there has to be a larger space, a longer time, a greater number of possible competitors. That means there has to be an outside, right? And like, it, it, I think this is going to go back later, like come <laughs> back later in the episode, yeah, but yeah. it's kind of like, it made me think about the universe mm. and how people are like, well, what's outside the universe, right? It's like, well, it depends. Do you think the universe is a finite game or an infinite game? Right. Because if it's a finite game, which I think how most people would think about it, like, oh, if there's a space, there must be an outside of the space. Then it's a finite game, right? And then there, yeah, then there is, a, that question is a valid question. Like what's on the outside of the universe, right? Um, are there parallel, you know, whatever, like whatever you think there might be. But if you think it's an infinite game, then that question is actually nonsensical. Exactly. Because there is no outside. Yeah, how could there be an outside, right? Right. And I think yeah. if you astrophysicists, at least as I understand it, they will tell you that it is actually an infinite space that is also finite. Mm. <laughs> which sounds yeah. really strange but basically it's, it's something about it how the way it's shaped yeah it yeah. curves back around on itself and so you can move in any direction for an infinite amount of time but there is still a finite space oh, right okay. which is i think where the sort of donut shape comes into it where if you imagine you're in the donut and you're within curved space you could move in one direction in, when you're thinking in terms of like typical 3d vectors but that's actually a curved direction in space time Right, because you could move straight, but you'd actually be going around the donut. Yeah, so it might look right? straight to you. It looks straight to you, feels straight to you, but you're actually curving. And so it becomes infinite based on how it's shaped. Okay. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson has a new book, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. It's actually really oh, good. I've heard it's actually pretty good. Yeah, it's really good. You can read through it in like a weekend and explain some of this stuff pretty well. Well, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on the podcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a great first name too. Yeah, he does. Yeah. There's a lot of good authors of, with the name. A good author's name, Neil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, but that's what that section made me think of. But it also is like beyond a physical finite or infinite thing. It, it applies even to like time, right. which I mean, he does outline that, right? Yeah, I think time. time is the big one. Yeah, where it's kind of like, I mean, it, going back to like sports, right? If you win the championship of whatever season, that implies that there's more seasons as well. It's right. not like that's the only season. Otherwise, that'd actually be kind of sad. Yeah. <laughs> like you won the last championship <laughs> and ever. No more. There's no more champion. Right. So, but it implies that, okay, you won this year and that there's a greater number of possible competitors. There are more teams that you're going to have to play against next year and that uh, more players that will enter that league. And it'll be a different, it'll essentially be a different game, but the same game, if that makes sense. Yeah, same it'll, be, it'll be a different game different. within a larger game. Yes. There's the meta finite game of right. football, and then there's the individual football game. Yeah. And there's right. like, well, there's even multiple things, right? So if you think about, let's use football as a good example. There's like the current season, which is the current NFL season. Then there is the history of the entire NFL, right? So when someone says like, oh, the Patriots have a dynasty, that's a dynasty within the history of, within this NFL game. Right. And then there's the overarching game of football, which, I mean, there have been other leagues as well, yeah, and other than college. the NFL, and yeah. there's college, yeah. And then, yeah, exactly. So there's like yeah. multiple finite games happening here all at once. And then the time is really just relative to whichever game you were thinking within, which is one of the areas, I think time is a big one, where that idea of finite players play to win within the game and infinite players play to expand the boundaries. That's one of the things where I think time comes in like really in a really big way because I, I always think of it at least here in terms of entrepreneurship and work and if you're being very finite about 
starting a company or something, your goal is to get to a certain sales price Mm. or to get to certain revenue before your runway runs out or one of those goals. But if you're thinking of it from a more infinite standpoint, the goal is simply to be able to keep building it and keep growing it and keep making it bigger. There's not really a clear end goal that you're getting to. It's to continue expanding the area of play. I like that a lot. Yeah. I I had somebody ask me something like that the other day where he was like, what's your goal with the writing and the podcast and all that stuff? And it was after we had read the book. Mm. And so what I said was basically like, it's sort of to just keep expanding my ability to do it, right? It's a really, really good way to think about it. It's easy to think of specific goals you're going after, but it's almost more motivating to think of it as self-sustaining, like creating something that will allow you to continue doing that thing that you want to do anyway. Yeah. I think that also requires you liking what you do. Oh, yes. (laughs) That's definitely a prerequisite. It's like, I hate my job, but I want to create a way to keep it going. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Actually, he has that right here. An infinite player does not begin working for the purpose of filling time with work, but for the purpose of filling work with time. Work is on an infinite player's way of passing time, but of engendering possibility. Work is a way of moving towards a future, which itself has a future. It's like it goes back to the horizon idea. Exactly. You keep expanding the horizon. Yep. Yeah. Speaking of horizons, nature. Nature. Nature has horizons. Nature is the realm of the unspeakable. So from the book... Nature is the realm of the unspeakable. It has no voice of its own and nothing to say. We experience the unspeakability of nature as its utter indifference to human culture. This chapter, I think to me, actually, besides like the framing of the entire book, spoke to me the most. Uh, I think just like in terms of making some ideas explicit that I think we might all think or know implicitly, but we don't we don't always realize like, I mean, so for example, these, uh, I mean, the past few weeks, right. We've had some natural disasters like earthquake in Mexico and then all the hurricanes that have been going on. Literally this line right here, this utter indifference to human culture. Yeah. Nature just does not care care. about humans. And you can't like call it evil. Like you can't say nature is evil because nature just is in my opinion, at least. Right. It's only evil in relation. It's evil or bad, even the adjective bad, right? In relation to human beings. Nature just is, though. It's just doing its thing. It's doing its thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's not good or bad. Well, that's why whenever I hear somebody talk about like, oh, save the earth. We need to think of the earth. We need to think of the planet. It's like the planet's fine. Yeah. The, like, the planet earth, might not be fine in relation to humans. Exactly. Yeah. Humans won't be fine. Yeah. We could definitely mess exactly. up the planet it's in a way right where about. we'll die and yeah. lots of animals will die. But I guarantee you the earth has taken the much worse beatings than. <laughs> like uh, a couple of degrees increase in temperature, right? right? Will that be bad for the Humans might not be okay. Humans won't be okay. It's certainly not. But (laughs) the earth will still be here. It'll be fine, right? right? Like it's suffered much worse. Right. And even if it's not, the molecules that make up the earth will still go on to do, you know, be something else, whether it's dust in space, even if like the earth literally blows up. And nature, it's still nature though, right? It's still (laughs) still like nature, nature it still exists. It's still, even if it gets hit by a thousand asteroids in a row, and there's no planet left anymore. It's all dust. That's still nature. So, yeah. I always love, uh, sorry, this is going to be in my soapbox for a second, yeah. but like, I always find like the concept of uh, all natural to oh, be very yeah. interesting um, and kind of hilarious sometimes. Like there's that meme that sometimes goes around of like all the quote unquote chemicals in um, whatever, like some common product, like an apple, I think is the example that always is given. It's arsenic. Yeah. It's like iron. (laughs) But they always give like the chemical names for it. Oh, right. We'll find I'll I'll, we'll put this in the show notes. Um, Well, I also like the flip side, which is that, you know, all the other all natural things you can get like cocaine. Yeah. And uh, okay. Like arsenic's a good example. Right. Plenty of poisons. It's all natural. Well, everything is. I mean, it's organic. It organic cocaine, Neil. And I think it's also, really good for you. Yeah, exactly. 
Hey, that's might be a big business idea. <laughs> uh, all right, we'll stop with that tangent. But um, th- this idea of natural that he's talking about, I think, in my opinion, at least, it's that is like the infinite game here, right? Like, I think he even says, I don't think we have this in our uh, outline here, but everything that happens is natural. Even when we say like, oh, plastics are not natural, right? Like it's yeah. a human created thing. That's still natural. Right. <laughs> everything humans do is natural because we are part of this universe of this infinite game, right? That's true. That is nature. Yeah, it's not natural maybe in historically. Right. Like if you if that's your definition, like it's a definition, you know, it's yeah. a semantics here. But animals shape their environment in a lot of ways, right? right? So you, right. you could argue that a like a devoured tree is not natural because it couldn't exist without termites. Right. But just because termites exist doesn't mean that what they do isn't natural right right and i think i mean taking a big giant step back like we're not advocating that we go burn all the fossil fuels in the world and like destroy the environment we are humans so we have a selfish interest in maintaining the planet although (laughs) we're humans this this is another tangent but tangent time have you seen any of the stuff about the moral case for fossil fuels uh-uh. It's a pretty recent book that came out. I listened okay. to an interview with the author, so I can That only, might be a made you think. That could be a good episode. Well, because one of the things that he talks about is like farming okay. and farming in the way that we do it and the ability to sustain the amount of people alive in the world right now isn't possible without fossil fuels, like especially with powering tractors and everything. Mm. And so one of the arguments that he's making in the book is that everyone's saying that we need to get off of fossil fuels as fast as possible, right? It's like, well, Sort of, right? I mean, that's a good long-term goal, but there's a lot of really good uses for them right now, right? It's never quite so black and white. And, you know, we need them for food and for a lot of, like, transportation. And it's like finding that balance of it's so easy to take these moral stances oh yeah of we need to get rid of all fossil fuels we need to like be natural we need have to, we ever like, save the earth project i did in college around if we turned every car to an electric car no okay this was my sophomore year okay. so it's 2010 so the numbers might be different now but at that time basically the project i did was uh i was looking at what would be the effect on the co2 output of mm. vehicles if every single car magically was switched to electric overnight versus what it is today and surprising thing, well, to me it was surprising, maybe not so surprising to you or to any listeners, was that actually CO2 emissions go up. Really? And the reason for that is that the majority of electricity is produced via coal. And this is globally, right? But yeah. like, you look at China, it's mostly coal. You look at India, it's mostly coal. Actually, a large chunk of the US is mostly coal as well. So it's like, if you're switching from like oil, gas to yeah. electricity, oil is cleaner than coal. Right. But it's very easy to have this moral stance of like, we need an electric vehicle. All cars need to be electric vehicles. But if you actually look at like where that electricity is coming from, you got to look at what's producing. The, like, yeah, how exactly. That electricity is being produced. Well, that's always been like the big challenge. Right. Yeah. Which is, I think, why. But as going back to what you said about moral stances, it's very easy to take yeah. the moral stance of like electric cars are better than gasoline powered cars. But they're really not. If you did that in like China, for example, until right. China fixes how, or fixes, sorry, changes Improves how they produce. Yeah, yeah. How they produce electricity. It actually might make CO2 emissions worse. That's a good point. I didn't expect this one to have as many tangents. Hey, this is a great book. <laughs> it's good. It was a lot, a lot to talk about here. Um, no, yeah, but at, like, again, I think this idea of what he's calling nature is like the infinite game of existence. Right. Yeah, it gets yeah. sort of hard to say where nature starts and stops. I think when we, most people, including us, probably talk about natural, yeah, it's in relation to like historically natural of like what pre-human intervention. Well, so bring it back to his earlier point then, if the human nature relationship is a finite game, then that sort of 
necessitates the good bad mm-hmm. enemy dichotomy yeah where we have to frame things as like us versus nature right yeah. or you know nature versus us or us trying to like improve it take advantage of it whatnot even though that dichotomy is kind of artificial if we think of it on a broader scale right that is within the game of our current planet's environment exactly but you could actually think beyond that which we are intimately connected to which we are obviously right but there is a way to expand the horizon right by going to mars or (laughs) that changes the rules of the game that plays with the boundaries yeah plays with the boundaries it completely changes the game yeah yeah elon musk yeah (laughs) infinite player infinite player This didn't really have to do with nature, but I liked where he talks about explanation here, that explanation is also this kind of combative thing where he describes it as an antagonistic encounter that succeeds by defeating an opponent. So it possesses the same dynamic of resentment found in other finite play where I will press my explanations on you because I need to show that I do not live in the error that I think others think I do. And I feel like this perfectly explains Social media fights. <laughs> I was going to say it perfectly explains maybe why we're doing the podcast. <laughs> I, maybe. I, I, I'll be a little more generous no, with I'm us. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I feel like so much of online fighting is people trying to prove that the other's interpretation of their viewpoint is wrong. Yeah. It is not so much to teach somebody else something or to explain something. It is to explain why they are wrong about what you think. Right. Yeah, it's more of a error correction teaching which is where i think strawmanning other people's arguments you know presenting the weakest possible version is so problematic because it makes this problem worse Mm. right if i'm having a debate with you and i give the weakest possible interpretation of your argument you will feel significantly more you know riled up about correcting my exactly correcting my understanding than if i do a really generous accurate interpretation of your argument and so i think from his point here right explanation is actually helped by giving someone's best argument and then showing where it's wrong right as opposed to just like well, i mean darwin used that tactic i think a yeah. lot of people use that tactic uh a lot of effective people who've convinced other people right yeah. well i think it might have been in the amusing ourselves to death episode but it was the lincoln douglas right. debates where they were talking about how they would set up the other person's argument and give a very detailed explanation of the other person's argument Instead of like the soundbite version. Or, or those three hour long yeah. speeches. <laughs> three hours each. Three hours each. <laughs> yes, exactly. Plus an hour for a rebuttal. <laughs> so crazy. Not as crazy as listening to a three hour podcast. Just <laughs> actually, no, probably crazier. Just kidding. Probably crazier. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and then this idea that uh, I can't explain anything to you unless I first draw your attention to inadequacies in your knowledge. Nobody will listen to an explanation of something unless they already believe that they don't understand it. Right. I think if somebody already believes they understand something, they'll just completely ignore somebody else's points. And then the biggest challenge for each of us, obviously, is being open to discovering we are wrong about things. Right. Right. Or having that uh, beginner's mind about things, right? Of just like assuming you don't know. Right. That's maybe a a book I haven't read, uh, but you've told me a decent amount about. And I think, do you have notes up for that? Definitely read someone's notes about that. If you Google Nat Eliason's and my beginner's mind, you'll probably find it. All right, I will go do that right after the episode. (laughs) And it'll be in the show notes. (laughs) Yeah, well, and then this idea of knowledge being so valuable, where he's talking about explanation and then how 
people link knowledge and property so closely that they're thought to be continuous. And we think of knowledge as having value when, you know, technically it doesn't, but we think, oh, knowledge is power, right? And we always think we want people to, or we assume that people who make money or win in society's game yeah. are like the most knowledgeable. Yeah. Or that right? they know something. Like we think there's some correlation between the two, like between knowledge and property. Yeah. But that's clearly just not true. Sometimes there is. Some, but oh yeah, definitely is sometimes. Yeah, but but there's a lot of PhDs who oh, yeah. do not make any money. And there's a lot of, you know, high level executives at large companies who probably do not know how to do much else besides play company politics. Yeah. So it can definitely go in the other way as well. I think we can actually move on to the next chapter too, which is sort of on nature. Even I was going to say it's very much connected yeah, to this one. Even yeah. though the last one didn't talk about nature all that much. And then this one does talk more about nature. It's it's odd, oddly structured book. Uh, but so this one's called We Control Nature for Societal Reasons. And he says that the control of nature advances with our ability to predict the outcome of natural processes. And as much as predictions are but explanations in reverse, it is possible that they will be quite as combative as explanations. It follows that our domination of nature is meant to achieve not certain natural outcomes, but certain societal outcomes. And then he gives this example of the atomic bomb, where we describe it as, oh, this triumph over nature. We harness the atom. But it was really just to have power over other people. Totally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All control of nature is about controlling each other. Yeah. We're doing something for societal reasons, I would say. Like, I mean, even if like you think about transportation it's in relation to other humans. Like we want to be able to travel faster. We want to be able to transport our goods faster or whatever. Yeah. It's not really about like controlling a natural process. No. Well, it's I, all natural processes. Again. <laughs> it's true. But I mean, since you brought up travel, right? He's got this whole section on travel yeah. in here, which I thought was pretty cool. And like with the automobile, right? That we don't buy it to own some machinery, but what it will let us do, which is, you know, with the travel case, right, move more rapidly from one place to another. But then his point is that the importance of reducing travel time is that by arriving as quickly as possible, we need not feel as though we had left it all. Where we talk about traveling, but in most cases, we are trying to decrease our traveling because the traveling. Yeah, that's true, actually. We wouldn't want to necessarily take a several week journey on a boat to get to like Europe. But the journey itself is the infinite game and the arriving is the end of the finite game. Right. And so the actual travel itself is what we end up reducing so that we can be someplace while feeling like we haven't left at all. Especially now that we can bring technology and everything with us, right? Yeah. Where it's like with the digital nomad movement, you can pack up your bags and in a day later be in Thailand living exactly as you're living in New York. And yeah. you basically may not have just traveled. spending less money. That's yeah, it. spending yeah. less money. You may as well have not traveled at all. Yeah. Right. And he gives that distinction too that travel is not measured in distance, but in actual difference, where the motels around the airports in Frankfurt and Tokyo are basically the same. Yep. Did you have the sense when you were in any of the Asian cities or any of the cities that you traveled to, to be honest? where like you kept seeing the same stores everywhere, especially like the downtown areas. And that kind of bugs me a little bit because when you travel from, I don't know, you leave someplace, whatever city you live in, you go somewhere else, you kind of hope to see something different. Yeah. Well, that was why I really didn't like Seoul in particular. Mm, Was it Seoul? It was literally New York with more barbecue places and just flip the populations of Asians and whites. And then you're like, there you go. That's right. That's Seoul. Yeah. That's one thing I liked about Tokyo is Tokyo is like, it's actually different. (laughs) Yeah. Actually that, so I I would ditto exactly what you said for Seoul. I would say the same thing actually for Shanghai. Like Shanghai I thought was, it was, it was okay. But like the delta between Shanghai and New York is not very much. And I wouldn't even say you'd flip the population of whites and Asians because there's so many white people in Shanghai too. (laughs) Yeah, it was just very much felt like you hadn't left. Yeah, and I find too when I think about the places I've enjoyed traveling to most, 
now that I'm on this subject, they are the places that are most different from here. Like yeah, Kyoto. Which is why you travel. Yeah, which is no. why you travel. <laughs> well, you can just stay here. <laughs> but but knowing that, I think, gives you the impetus to try to make where you're going as different as possible. That's a great point. Right? It's like you could go do a safari in Africa and do the really like glamorous camping, you know, comfy, cozy place, glamping. Yeah. Or you could actually, you know, rough it out in the Serengeti with some tribes people and try to get as close to authentic as possible. Yeah. And the latter will probably be a better experience and more memorable because it is more different. It might be a little painful. You might be pushing up on a boundary, but you'll grow. It's good. You got to think horizontal. Yeah. <laughs> Should we move on to machine versus garden? Yeah, I was going to say that machine point is such a big part of this chapter too, that there's this dichotomy between nature, the garden, and then the machine. I also thought he might have pulled some of these ideas from uh, Zen, Zen work, because I mean, they have, and I don't know a ton about this because there wasn't that much in way of Zen, but he, I think there was, might've been like one chapter on it. Okay about like why are zen gardens like even a thing yeah. and it's kind of like seemed a little bit like this idea of where you're not like controlling nature and i think this is a quote from the book where it says the machine is a driven by a force which yeah. must be introduced from without the garden is grown by an energy which originates from within itself so um yeah i think in the zen idea it was it's very similar in the sense that a garden is something you tend but it originates from its own energy as opposed to like you are creating the garden, right? So there, it sounds a little subtle, but the difference couldn't be greater. Yeah, right. and that's the big difference here between a machine and a garden is a garden is something that is, you know, infinitely bounded in yeah. that even if you do nothing, it will grow of its own energy yes. and continue to thrive. Whereas the machine, you must fuel from outside. It is not self-sustaining in any way. That'd be awesome it, if it were. Exactly. Well, but, I mean, it's, it's actually, I mean, and this is relating it to the, I guess, other context that we've talked about, but it's somewhat the difference between top down and bottom up, mm. right? Uh, and I'm not coming up with this. This is from Way of Zen, which we're doing pretty soon. But in that, right, he said in, in the Western way of thinking, we kind of have more of this top down approach, this idea that like the garden needs to be created as opposed to there's words in some of the Eastern languages that are much more of this, like there's much more description given to this spontaneous growth idea mm. of where um, things are originating of their own accord and you can sort of tend them or put boundary conditions maybe on them, but you're not, you're not the one doing it. It's happening already. And there doesn't need to be a person doing it. It's just sort of, it occurs. Okay. Um, and there's a word, there's a Japanese word for it that he used in Way of Zen, which we can find and put in the show notes as well. I thought this distinction was so interesting in that you can think of a lot of things as either machines or gardens. Mm -hmm. And if it's somewhat self-sustaining and growing at least somewhat on its own, it's a little bit more of a garden, something you're living within intending to. I think relationships can be thought of as gardens in a lot of ways, but then a lot of work is more on the side of the machine where you have to fuel it from outside. It is not going to be self-sustaining. And this is actually an area where, and I've heard, I'm not sure this is a completely accurate understanding of the term, but entropy is kind of relevant okay. where like entropy basically, it, there's a tendency towards chaos, right. right? Things don't want to be well-ordered. And when something tends toward chaos in the garden, it's going to be probably like weeds and other things growing, but it is still growth, right? The it's only and weeds again. Weeds are a relative term. Exactly. Right? They're not bad. Right. It's just different. Right. Right. It's not what we want in our garden, but the garden doesn't care what we want. Right. Right. Yeah. But with a machine, as the machine, you know, tends towards more entropy, it will break down. It will not get better. Right. The yeah. garden will grow and improve through, you know, all this randomness. The machine will like break down. And so there could be some things in your life that can kind of like grow and thrive in relation to those changes and randomness. 
randomness and other things that can't in the breakdown. One would say one of them is fragile and yeah. one is anti-fragile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as I was saying that, I was like, hmm, I wonder how much entropy played into his, his thinking. But yeah, I mean, we all I mean, uh, things, right? we're getting a little more technical on entropy. Like the best analogy I've heard for it is for thinking about it in terms of combinations. So okay. like think about for like your room, right? Your room is never spontaneously going to become ordered. Right. Because there's only, let's say, one or two or maybe three different ways your room can be ordered. But there are infinite ways it can be disordered. Your sock can be over here or over here. That piece of paper can be over here or over here. You can throw that book on this part of your floor or your bed. There's like infinite ways that that could happen. So if you just think about like from a probability standpoint, (laughs) the odds that your room is ordered is definitely going to require something forcing that ordering to happen. Right. But if you just let it happen, like you just let your room exist and live in it, it's going to definitely tend towards becoming disordered. There's way more combinations well, probably to make why, that happen. Uh, life-changing magic of tidying up is such a good mm-hmm. strategy because when you have a specific place for everything clearly defined, then you know exactly where it should always be. And so you can right. see you the deviations. The yeah, exactly. You reduce the combinations. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Interesting. I haven't read that book, though. It's worth it. Yeah. It's like an afternoon read. It's yeah, quick. it seems short. Yeah, it's short. There's a few really good ideas in it that I find are useful little mental tricks Tidbits. yeah do you have a notes page i do on that one so you can also google i'll check out the life-changing notes. magic of tidying up summary Ned elias and you'll find it but then i think the last thing on some of the garden machinery stuff is waste yeah and it goes back to what we've been saying in that it's not all these terms like unnatural or weeds are really just kind of subjective judgments and he says that that's true for waste too where waste isn't the result of what we have made it is what we have made you didn't like make dinner and now you have this garbage, right? You made garbage right. along with dinner, right? right? That, yeah. that was one of the products. And then we find it unveiling as he describes it, right? We find it's a little, makes us uncomfortable. And we realize that we've chosen to make it, that we created it when we could have chosen not to make it. And right. so then we try to remove it and place it out of sight and hide it. The idea of and, landfills or something. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like it extends beyond just physical waste too, right? Where it's like all the little mistakes, the byproducts, the things that we didn't want to make as a result of our main production. We, we end up trying to hide and put somewhere it's else. It's a narrative, right? right? It's yeah. like we were talking about before. It's like you kind of resort to this narrative that kind of glosses over all the <laughs> yeah. all the little experiments and side projects and you know left turns you made exactly you're, you're uh, whittling down the linkedin to make it look as nice as yeah, possible exactly. right exactly whereas uh yeah no that's totally right yeah i hadn't thought about it in those terms before i was thinking about it like the physical waste only but you're totally right about like the life choices as well and then this last section he actually talks about myth so if anybody hasn't listened to our power of myth episode Maybe go check it out. But uh, back in an hour and a half. Yeah, exactly. Continue <laughs> <laughs> here. But yeah, so myth provokes explanation but accepts none of it. If you want to read the Yep. So myth provokes explanation but accepts none of it. Where explanation absorbs the unspeakable into the speakable, myth reintroduces the silence that makes original discourse possible. I mean, I still am struggling to put into words what this chapter quite means. Mm-hmm. But I think that's part of the point, right? Is like, Well, that's literally what he's saying. Yeah. There. Explanation <laughs> absorbs the unspeakable into the speakable. Yep. As soon as you say something, some of the original meaning has been lost. But I think though, and that, this is, okay, this is, I'm probably, again, losing some of the meaning of what I'm trying to say here, Go but that's going to happen on a podcast when yeah. we're turning the unspeakable into the speakable. <laughs> but I think myths are for some reason in that halfway zone where of course they're spoken or written or however, you know, they're communicated, but they still maintain some of that unspeakability quality. And maybe that's what makes something qualify as a myth. Well, I think that that is the distinction he makes here. You know, one myth reintroduces the silence 
that makes original discourse possible, where it, you get a very different thing if you have a a parable versus a seven bullet point list yeah. of what you should do, right? The yeah. parable will have a bit more richness to it. And then he has this bit here about the myth. The story being retold. Yeah, exactly. Right. Where a story attains the status of myth when it is retold and persistently retold solely for its own sake. Right. They're inherently valuable. You don't use them to win arguments or to prove a point. You tell them because they make you think. Right. Right. Like they inspire interesting ideas, make you think. Ah. I I promise I'll stop. (laughs) By like episode 10 or 12, we'll we'll be done. (laughs) I'm like, it makes you think. (laughs) And then it obviously it all ties back to the finite versus infinite play where the infinite players aren't actors in any story, but they're focused on creating a story that continues to originate what they cannot finish. So it continues to spread horizontally. Okay. That's what he's tying back to, right? You know, a a finite player tells, you know, beginning, middle, end, right? Stories over infinite player. It's much more like this continuous journey where you're continually like embarking on new pieces of it. And he has this here too, right? The livelihood of a culture is not determined by how often thinkers discover new knowledge, but how often they depart in search of it. So the discovering new knowledge, that's the end of the finite game. Right. The continual departure is the infinite game. Right. So the search. The search. Yeah, yeah exactly. The quest. Um, what about this section on amplification? Yeah. That sort of went over my head, I think. Well, I, I understood it, but I wasn't sure why he included yes, it. Yes, that's what I mean. Like, I didn't get necessarily... <laughs> the relevance? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe he's just saying things that are too loud. Well, okay. Like, I, kind of drown so, out. So here's my theory, right? And so what he's saying is that the opposite of resonance is amplification. A choir is the unified expression of a voice resonating with each other. A loudspeaker is the amplification of a single voice, excluding all others. A bell resonates, a cannon amplifies. We listen to the bell, we are silenced by the cannon. What I think he's saying is that myth is a form of resonance, hmm. where mythology and these stories resonate throughout time. In that there's in the something, infinite game. Exactly. In the sort of infinite game where we all recognize some part of ourselves in these stories hmm. so that we continue to share them and they continue to resonate with us. And because, you know, it is resonating with so many people, it continues to get told, we continue to hear it. But if something is projected at you via a loudspeaker, I'm thinking like 1984, you know, Big Brother telling you what to do, you don't listen to it because there is no internal resonance with it. And so- It's almost this top down. Yeah, exactly. Top down versus bottom up. When it's bottom up, there is that amplification via resonance, right? Whereas if it's top down, it doesn't resonate with you. You don't feel it. And so I think maybe expanding it beyond that is that for something to continue to grow, for it to be a garden and whatnot, it has to have that resonance with the self, with what you're doing for the game to be able to continue to be played. Right. It must resonate with itself and within the players. It can't be right. shouted through a loudspeaker. Yeah. Otherwise, it's a finite game that will get closed down, come to an end That's eventually. Something. Yeah. Yep. Maybe that's where it comes in. And then what about this last line? So I'm going to ask uh, you for the explanation on this one, since this, I, like, I think I got it, but maybe I didn't. Um, there is but one infinite game. What did you take away from that? Well, okay. So I think the simple, obvious explanation is that life is the infinite game. Your life or the universe or... Well, okay. That's that's where I got tripped up. I was like, is he talking about... So when he said there's one infinite game, part of my issue is one is a number. So it's like... Because what I was thinking before I got to this line, so I'll tell you where I got confused and maybe like you can hopefully clear things up. Um, I got confused where I was thinking he was going to say there are an infinite number of infinite games. Okay. Right? Because it's like okay, each individual is playing their own infinite game and then the universe is an infinite game and then nature is, you know, like I was thinking like he's going to basically say it's like basically a matter of perspective 
But then in this case, he was like, there's one infinite game. Well, I actually don't think that those are mutually exclusive. Okay. Because oh, just, well, one could be the infinity could be within. The yeah. Infinity. By nature yeah, of right, infinity. Right. Okay. And I think maybe his point is that since an infinite game never ends and never starts, there can't be multiple infinite games because that would imply that one contains another one. That's a good point. For yeah. it to be containable, it must have boundaries, mm. right? And if it has that boundaries, that, it's that not an infinite, infinite game, game at that point. Right? Yeah. So it could just be a like, tautological mathematical Absolutely. expression. So I could be thinking about it correctly. Yeah. Just The way I would think about it is that you're correct in that even like on a more micro level in this conversation, it's sort of an infinite game because our goal is to continue the dialogue with each other and continue right. doing that. But that is part of the broader infinite game, which is our day-to-day lives right. or our work, which is part of the broader infinite game. Right. That's right? what I meant. Cause like earlier yeah. in the conversation, we were talking about all these different infinite games that were kind of like contained within the other infinite games. Yeah. But so, none of them ever end. They right. just expand into the bigger infinite yes. game. And I feel like that's the distinction he's making. Oh, and then we're playing with the boundaries so that those games continue. Continue to be played. Yeah. Exactly. And if it ever ends, then that may have been a finite game within the broader infinite game. But the infinite game itself should not be ending because you're expanding the boundaries of play. Right? Can you be an infinite player of a finite game? Yeah, I, I think he talks about that a decent does. amount. Yeah. And then we also we didn't talk about master player. Right. Master player is like a finite player who's playing within the rules, but is amazing at that. Yeah, and knows exactly what's going to happen. Right, so like the best lawyer. But I think like an infinite player within a finite game recognizes it is a finite game and recognizes they are choosing to play within the boundaries, but they take it much less seriously, right? right? So it's like somebody who doesn't care about GPA in college, right? They're still playing in those rules, but they take it much more lightly and they're, you know, there to learn or something. It's like a different mindset. Yeah, interesting. This is a cool book. This is a really cool book. I really enjoyed this. I feel like it's one with, it gives you a few of those little mental tweaks, ways of thinking after you come out of it that are very helpful. It's a pretty short book. You know, you could very easily revisit it. And I mean, even if you haven't read it, you could easily read it. And uh, I think it only took me like two or three days to read. Yeah, same. It's pretty quick. And it's pretty digestible too, because I think the way he breaks it down in the different sections, it's, uh, yeah. That's the one thing that was really nice about it is that it's weirdly written and it's an odd structure, but it's refreshing that it's not this 300 page business book, right? (laughs) With half the detail and three times as much fluff. Isn't it interesting how like all the books end up at like the same length? Yeah. Well, you was, think there's something about publishers. I was going to say, I don't know if I told you this, but if you find a book that's like between 250 and 300 pages long, it's like probably not that good a book. Yeah. <laughs> They're probably like the good books are either less than 250 pages or more than 400. Yeah. Right. But there's that publisher goal window where <laughs> most amazing. like business books. I guess it might be tied to sales somehow or. Yeah, I think it's margins mm. on like publishing costs. Oh, for printing. Right, for and- printing it. Yeah, and shipping and everything. And then like what you can charge and all of that. Like if it's too big, then they lose money. If it's too small, then... Maybe um, people won't buy it because they don't think there's enough in there. Yeah, maybe it doesn't sell as well. Or it's- Well, because remember, a lot of it's popcorn, right. right? That's being sold at like airports or, you know, people list- uh, not listening, reading on their Kindle or something, but want to feel productive. It's like, it can't be 90 pages. No. So then it's not going to work. But I, I appreciate those books so much I more now. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's just like, all right, there's no How fluff in here. How much was this, do you think? What was it, like 100? It's about something? 150. It's almost yeah. exactly 150. Oh, which is short. It's good length. Yeah. Yeah, this one. And then uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death was also 150 or so. Sovereign Individual, 400. Anti-Fragile, 400. GEB is not. <laughs> GEB is like 700. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't started that yet, but that's a future episode. Yep. Stay tuned. But yeah, so... Definitely recommend everyone go pick up a copy of Finite and Infinite Games by James B. Cars. Yep. There was a lot of stuff we talked about that'll be in the show notes. Yes. Check out. Made you think podcast.com. Yep. 
And yeah, see you all next time. Hey, you can find us on Twitter. Find Let us Twitter know what you think. Right. Yes. Can't forget the Twitter shout Can't out. Twitter shout out. <laughs> I'm at the Rail Neil S. I'm at Nat Eliason. And yeah, tell your friends, send us a tweet, leave a review. And if you have any ideas for things you'd like to hear us talk about too, let us know. Maybe we'll do like a rapid fire topic episode sometime. Mm, That'd be an interesting one. Yeah. That'd be really cool, actually. All right. See you guys next time. See ya. Cheers. All right. We hope that everybody listening enjoyed that episode of Made You Think. Hope it made you think about something. Uh, couldn't resist couldn't resist no it had to be said but as always episode show notes and more are available at made you think podcast.com definitely go check it out get the links to everything that we mentioned in the show you can always hit us up on twitter i'm at nat eliason and i'm at the rail neil s so let us know what you thought of this episode and share it with a friend who you think might enjoy it this podcast can only survive and grow with your help And we would love it if you would let somebody else who you think might enjoy listening to these topics know about the show. Thanks, guys. See you next time.